Disrupting the flow of money into coal, gas and oil is critical to limiting the impacts of climate change. Your bank could be investing billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry. Bank Australia is an ethical bank that doesn't fund harmful industries. Join over 185,000 Australians who have made the switch. Search Bank Australia Solutions. Hiya, I'm Barry Liberman, publisher and editor of Dumbo Feather magazine and podcast. Today I'm kind of marvelling at the fact that it's taken this long, but I'm interviewing my mentor, Joan Sheckel. When I was a graduate of the Victorian College of the Arts, I went straight to do film in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And Joan was at the epicentre of the independent film world as an acting coach, director, writer, and what people call in the biz a script doctor. Joan has a preternatural gift for story structure, emotional rhythm and through line. She taught me everything that I know and she still teaches many of the best in the business over there. She's a master story crafter, story wizard. I feel like story is at the core of who we are. So this is a kind of masterclass in storytelling with Joan and it's not conventional She's not traditional, and at the core of her thesis is that we can tell stories that heal. We can tell stories that are generated from the impulse of connection, meaning, purpose, feeling, as opposed to what actually happens in Hollywood and script writing, which is most story is centred around conflict, and we're told that we need conflict to drive a story forward. I was lucky enough at a very young age to be mentored by Joan. I think she's a genius um, and she doesn't usually do podcasts, so I feel incredibly lucky and privileged that we have this unbelievable window into how she thinks. When I'm with her, I'm often transported to the deeper parts of myself and I'm reminded of how powerful this work is. It just feels like a really remarkable gift to share that with all of you. Joan knows stuff that you only know from a lifetime lived, immersed in storytelling. There's so much more I could say and share. Just enter the vortex. It's a pretty amazing one. And know that for me, storytelling when I was younger was about making films in Hollywood. But it became everything. Everything we do is a story that we've crafted. And then everything we make, any business, any idea, it has the same principles for me. Anyway, that's how I applied it. I learned emotional through line and then I was like, oh, even a business has an emotional through line. Like what is the journey we're all taking ourselves on and how conscious can we be in crafting those stories we tell ourselves? It feels like a really powerful moment to be examining that. So enjoy. Much love. I can hear you and I can see you. And to everyone listening, this is not going to be the most fabulous quality, but it's taken us an hour to get here. And I love that it did because I feel like I'm back in film. Exactly. 
And we want to, after this, I can reach out to my friend who put me on this platform and get all the coordinates. So if we want to do another one, then we'll be able to use Zencaster more easily. Oh, we're going to do another one. I can already right. sense that that's happening. This is, like, <laughs> this is the clearest you've been and I can see your expression. It's so funny. I know because Barry. Joan. Connection hmm. is worth the effort <laughs> and really being able to hear one another and see one another i think that is the work of being human it's the hardest work of being human and it's the thing that we crave most deeply and have the opportunity to express through all the different forms of the arts which is exactly how i met you lo these many years ago so it's a thrill and it's an honor to be with you in this space with all that you've built, shared with people, stewarded, held space for, willed into being, collaborated, committed to create community hmm. based on putting value to human values. <laughs> you know, that yeah. was one of your first and most profound questions to me. You know that I always remember. If you're not measuring yourself by money, if you're not measuring yourself in the way that society gives you as the ruler, then what has value? If you're not measuring value by something that's material, then what is? Hmm. Yeah, I'm still in that exploration. I think it's going to be my life's work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what you've been doing through this magazine, through all of the different interviews and people that you've connected to and shared with others through your efforts on this platform. And I just want to say thank you. You're going to make me cry. So <laughs> I'm already crying. Oh, so, yeah, thank you. And we were both saying in our text to each other that it is very poignant to be speaking to you for the last issue. Oh, I, know. <laughs> I mean, it's really, really, really thrilling because I had the opportunity to meet you very early on in your journey. 21 and, years old. And I'll just never forget getting that phone call from you. I remember that I came to Australia and I did a tour and I met you after a talk. And I was meeting a lot of people. And I remember this incredibly passionate, formed mind. Do you know, like, I remember your energy and your passion and just saying, I, I, saying to me, I want to come study with you. And I had just started, pretty much started teaching myself. I hadn't been teaching that long at that point. I was like, sure, you know, come. But everybody says that. Everybody says, oh, I want to come teach with you. And I always say, of course, you know, I want that too. And that's the end of it a lot of the time. And then one day I got a phone call from you. At that time in my life, I never picked up the phone. I was like always just so focused and committing to work or whatever. And so I picked up the phone. And you're like, hi, it's Barry. I was like, what's <laughs> happening? No, no, I remembered you. Yeah. I mean, you were an unforgettable person. But then you were like, I'm in LA. And I was like, that's so great. And you were like, I'm here to study with you. And I was like, I didn't even have a lab going on at that time. And I think like there was nothing planned. It wasn't like I had a workshop and you were coming to that workshop. It's just 
you came with all of your openness and all of your curiosity and all of your passion for story and your ability just to go out into the world and just called me up and said, I'm here to work. And I was like, okay, let's have a session. (laughs) Is that how you remember it? Well, I love that that's how you remember it. My version was, I didn't know who I was dealing with, but I knew from the morning of your session, because I signed up for your workshop and I, I actually didn't sign up. I didn't get in. I was there because I snuck in, I think. And then you had unbelievable fuck off, don't come near me energy at the the break because you were in your process, right? Oh, oh, you came up to me during the break. On stage, you were on stage and you were like lying down. Like exhausted, right? Yes. And I was trying to figure out what to do next, right? Yes. I'm I'm sorry that I gave you that energy. Oh my God. You are so not sorry. You were in your zone and you were like... I just was like, I have to work with this woman, the end. You know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to interrupt what's happening here. I just want to let you know I'm coming. And it was really that. And I don't know why. I mean, I could feel the force of the work on stage and I could feel the force of you. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but I need to learn with this person. And that's all I really knew. And then I just jumped on a plane. I had no other plan for my time in LA. It was just, I need to follow that energy. And it's something that I still think about it all the time. And what people are listening to here is I'm talking to one of my greatest mentors and you've been a (laughs) profound teacher in my life and taught me really everything I know about story and Mm. also about honoring my creative life, which has been very challenging. But every time that I would come and study with you and, and all those years that I was lucky enough to have landed in that space of being taught by you. I mean, you were 33 at the time and I was 21, but people often ask me, how old is Joan? And I said, well, on any given day, 99 or 12. I can't tell you. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody really knows. But it was this incredible space that always felt timeless and mm. bottomless And I needed to know about my creative life and capacity. And I just was lucky enough that I sensed that in you as a teacher. It really was quite extraordinary. And it was was a powerful, powerful time of learning. It really formed me as a human being and taught me so much. And we could really have a whole podcast that would go for a year on all the lessons. We worked hard and we worked seriously. Because story is the self. If you're working on a a screenplay, which you were at the time, I think there's this notion that a story is something outside of you, like, oh, I'm going to tell a cool story, or I'm going to get some ideas together and like make a story and make a concept. But that's not story. Story is self. Story is your inner life moving outward. It is that within you that craves to be seen, known, and shared. It's an emanation. Imagination, it's not stuff you come up with. It's the actual lens to the soul. It's how you see inward. And then story is the means by which you express what is there. When we were working, all of that comes up, all of your deepest questions about who you are and what you want and how you feel. That is the story. 
Now, that's something that you understood and needed and went for and still do. I always feel like I enter a portal when we're talking and... Um, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> and I've always been in awe of how you hold that space for this work and you hold it for so many people working with story and the way that you described it and the way that you taught me, it was such big work and it began all my big work because the bigger the story that you want to tell, the more you have to know your own soul and know your story. You don't have to know it. Yeah, You're going to encounter it in the process of making the art or making the business or making whatever it is that you're making. A story is an encounter with the self and writing is a way of knowing and you have to have, well, I guess the therapy or the self-exploration allows you to tolerate what comes. Yeah, I think I often would say that. I mean, for me, it's very linked because, you know, I'm not a therapist, as you know, I'm a dramatist. So it's not my job and nor is it my skill or nor is it my intention to get inside of anybody's head. Like, that's not where I belong. I don't know what to do. Therapists know how to do that. And that's its own art form. Or I might say that story is therapeutic without being therapy per se, because therapy is the literal work on one's own mind, and story is the evocation of the self. So they're related, but one is an art form, meaning a story is a controlled art form. You can stop it and you can start it. You can put down the pen, you can walk away, you can change events, you can move things around. And in life and in therapy, the work of the mind, you can't do that. We try, but it's not controllable in the same way that a story is. I do think that talent and tolerating are really closely linked. How much can you tolerate revealing that which you have come to know about living? How much can you tolerate revealing what you feel? It's really, really, really hard to tolerate our own humanness. So art is a way that we can hang out a little bit longer. And if there's any purpose to craft at all, it's to stay. Craft is to stay. If it was easy to stay in the emotional truth of a story, then we wouldn't need craft. We wouldn't need any kind of technique. But in those moments when it's really tough to keep moving your pen, to keep making your work no matter what, no matter if anybody's going to see it, No matter if you'll ever finish it, no matter if it's commercially viable, whatever that means, no matter if it has something to do with an expectation of your own or the industry, none of that matters at all to the art of story. It has been deeply co-opted and corrupted by our entertainment industry, our actual impulse just to tell a story the story that we need to tell about the things that we see and feel in the world. And to me, you know, that's a big problem. That's why I do this work. It's interesting because we met each other at the beginning, like we were both at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was so hardcore because I just wanted to change things so badly. Like if you imagine green technology, Yep. I knew that I wasn't going to work in the oil industry and be able to like design an electric car or something, but I wanted to create a craft that would help 21st century storytellers 
speak to their own truths in their own individual ways and make space for a multiplicity of stories and a multiplicity of self-expression, not just one or two points of view, which our industry is really addicted to. Wow. I'm just having such a full body response to everything you're saying. And I can't believe what you're saying and how correlating our journeys have been in weird ways. And people might not know this. Obviously, I was telling story through Dumbo Feather as part of the extension of our work together. It was how can I go back in and work with financial capital and my creative capital? How can I do both? Keep telling stories because for me, the potency of storytelling as healing was the most obvious thing to me. The rest was confusing. (laughs) So (laughs) getting technique, getting craft. I remember you were hardcore and I needed hardcore just to crack some craft, you know, just to crack through my consciousness, to allow myself to skill up, to take myself seriously enough. I remember when, I don't know, I was 21 and we had so many sessions, so much work. And there was this moment where you went, oh, oh, you didn't know that you're intense. Oh, I remember that. I remember that. Okay, this is my memory of it. I just had a vivid image of you probably in sweats and like a white t-shirt, drawings and writings like all over the floor, deep diving into, you were looking at issues of art, family, the Holocaust, grief, hidden secrets, the yearning to connect to the beauty inside the self, which is everything I just mentioned. The beauty is of the full flowering of all of the human feelings and experiences that we're capable of, not just the things that look pretty or fit into an idea that we've been told, oh, well, this is what's right, but the mess, the unholy, rampant mess of the inner life as it seeks to be known. So I remember that moment. There is an intensity to that because feelings are big. It's why we fear them so much. Yeah. And I remember you saying to me, so number one, you have permission to be intense because you don't have a choice and that's who you are. (laughs) (laughs) And then you said, and you need to know that feelings won't kill you. Mm. Well, that's a big one, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Because we really. Yeah. Yeah. So you can go ahead and feel them. And that was what we're talking about, the ability to feel the big feelings, to tolerate them enough to share with the world what you know. Exactly. Because it's not going to look like anybody else's version. But that's why as we went along and and we stayed in touch all these years and you've done so much incredible work in the film world with those incredible storytellers. My path diverged, so it would seem, because I was working in business and I was working in the economy. And then um, we did a workshop during COVID and I remember I was on this screen with 50 filmmakers (laughs) and you and it still felt the same. I haven't felt like I've diverged at all from that practice. And then what came up for me during the work was the economy as a story. Yes. That's what I've been working with. Yes. And and when you just said that you went in, in your 30s so hardcore, you just wanted to change things and you had that feeling that you could open a space for something new or ancient, but something new to emerge. I've got the shivers, my whole body. I'm just, it just felt so 
familiar because Mm -hmm. I went into impact investing and to our work in the economy and our work in business as a B Corp and all these attempts to just open a crack in the universe where the light could get in and a new story could emerge of how we can live in this world honoring life. There's so much to talk about, which is why I think you and I very possibly, very likely a series. You talk about the nugget and the nugget for me all these years, I think, is what is the purpose of capital? And the purpose Mm. of capital is to be in service of life. Mm -hmm. I want to hear you say more about that. Yeah. I guess that's what I realized when I did your workshop and it gave me life for 18 months after it. And I didn't even finish the program because I couldn't because of all the business pressures. Right. It just gave me such a heart boost to go, okay, everything's falling apart in the system. In some ways, falling apart and not enough in some ways, of course, and a lot in others, because many people who are vulnerable have been hurt by that collapse and those who were not vulnerable. So there's lots to discuss there. But I feel like from what you just said, I have so many questions, but maybe my strongest one is you've been in it for so long now. How do you feel about? that about wanting things to change and opening up a space for? Oh, I love it. I love it because that's just in my nature, like it is in your nature. You know, you talked about, oh, I'm going into the fossil fuel company of the entertainment industry in Hollywood. Oh, oh, you mean like that? Yeah. Yeah. Like going into those industries, those spaces with these longings and these hopes and this capacity to open up space for humanity. I feel like I did the same with impact investing into renewables. Like you do the best that you can within a really broken system or a broken dynamic. And I'm feeling... Well, well, two things (laughs) that I think about that, because I also know for people listening, one of the biggest issues in the 21st century is despair. Yeah. The problems are so large and the time is dark in that even what truth is, is being thrown into question. There are big, big issues that face us that feel and seem beyond our present scope of ability to help heal our hearts toward a more connected humanity. Okay, so it's a really, really rough time in that regard, no matter where you look at the climate, at racism, at poverty, at water, at education, at human rights, like wherever you're looking, we're not seeing a lot of lust for forward thinking, shall we say. (laughs) But I always felt like, you know, those icebreakers that move through the Arctic Circle back when they used to have to have ships that could break the ice before it all melted. But there's this part on the front of the boat that's the icebreaker that you have this tremendous force and you have to have so much force and you just meet up with that immovable object. It's not even about breaking through it. It's just about meeting it right there. That sustained contact with that which must move towards consciousness. And so I still get a lot of incredible passion and joy out of being that part of the boat because change is a long game. I don't have big expectations. I mean, the work that I do is impactful and I'm lucky that I get to work with so many storytellers, but my business is very small. I keep it very small. I'm not looking for it. 
And by it, I want to speak specifically what I mean by it. It's very specific in that our industry is very addicted to conflict and to telling stories through conflict. Everything has to be parsed in that there's an antagonist on one side and there's a protagonist on another side. They're going to butt heads. That's going to create conflict. That conflict is what gives the story, any story, its energy. And then that conflict itself is going to drive that story forward until the next point of conflict. So it's very binary. It's all about, I want this, you want that. We oppose in those wants. And so we're going to fight about it. So it's conflict for conflict's sake. And I don't think that helps us make change. Conflict is not designed to make change. Conflict is designed to avoid change. So anyway, in my work, I've actively been saying, hey, look, there's another way to tell a story. It doesn't just have to be through conflict. You can center the story on meaning. That's what the nugget is on whatever has meaning to you. And then look at the chains of actions, feelings, and relationship that earn that truth. And that's applicable to a business. It's applicable to a magazine. It's applicable to a big action movie. It's applicable to a television commercial. It's applicable wherever you want it to be applicable to. This notion that you can look at things not in terms of who's going to win or lose, but what things mean and how they feel and what you do and how you relate. That's a story. So when you ask me how I feel, as you know, it's incredibly hard and it can be incredibly depressing, overwhelmingly frustrating when you're saying a very simple thing like, hey, let's look at meaning. Let's just look at meaning. And what has meaning to you, that that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you're automatically going to fall apart or that your movie will fail or that the business notion will fail. But if you're talking about meaning, if you're talking about truth, you're talking about change, you're talking about a tremendous amount of pushback. And if the pushback isn't happening, then we're probably not challenging as deeply as we might. I mean, first of all, I just got the shakes. It's uh, uh, just... I'm glad everybody got to hear that. Whenever we talk, I am reminded of the importance of fighting for working with honoring, staying true to what you just said. And I mean, I think it moves you because you resonate with it, with who you are, because I'm just talking about not even fighting, just doing the work of staying connected to who you actually are are. And that helps to endure the enormous frustration of one's own vision, intention, meaning, story, yearning, dream, not being heard, or not being heard to the fullness to what you can imagine. Even a little bit of change, even a little bit of feeling is fantastic, in my view, like a little goes a very long way. We're so finite. The limitations are so real in ourselves and in society. So I guess I also have the perspective of how much you can actually get done. And whatever you can get done matters. Hmm. It doesn't always have to be like the big thing, the great thing, the most thing. It just has to be a thing that's true. (laughs) I don't yet have that bit that you're talking about. There's two things. One, 
I mean, that I've always deeply admired about you, which is aside from everything, <laughs> was that your fierce protection of the heart of the work and you like being that part of the boat. And I have always actually described what we do, Dan and mm-hmm. I have been doing at Small Giants as the similar thing, the sort of edge of the wedge. Yeah. The front of the boat against the ice is beautiful too, because that's the relational field, right? That you're pushing up against something. And in yourself as well, you know, it's not like everybody else is the ice. No. (laughs) You know, it gives me a chance. And I think when we're working, any individual, you have to be right up against the part you feel but can't see until the new word comes. And we don't even have in those words yet. We don't even know what they are. We're mostly just using the same old words, words that we learned as children before we even knew what they meant or what somebody else told us. So there's a lot of ice inside of us and we're here to melt. Right. So I'm sure there's a lot of, I mean, I've always had the same question. I can answer them already by saying, you just have to work with Joan to know how true this is, this pulse, this space that you protect. And I remember you protecting this space for the deepest, truest work to happen. You were teaching me at 21 how to protect that space for myself, not only from the world we're living in now, which is 20 plus years on, I mean, the world now with phones and distractions and- Oh, it's rough. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Protecting that space. I've waxed and waned in my own ability to do it and have a family and have these businesses. I felt like in many ways, yeah, that when you talk like this, I can honestly say I have deepest love, authenticity and integrity been leaning into that through business and through the economy. I didn't realize, which might make you laugh. I just didn't realize how rough it was going <laughs> to be. I didn't realize. Oh. You know, I think just in terms of my own childhood, circumstances were so rough that I had a very, very early understanding of life is straight up. It's steep and it just gets steeper Hmm. because of my own direct experience, I think, as a kid. That's one of the big benefits of having a childhood that's hard in a lot of different ways. Hmm. I just have an intense need for truth and a love for reality and a yearning to contact reality before I die. As much as I work with story and as much as I work with imagination in all of its many forms, you want to have real contact, real contact with yourself and whatever it is that you're doing and who you're relating to. It's not supposed to be easy from anything I've ever read or heard or experienced. I suppose I just didn't have that expectation. And so if you find a glimpse of it, like I do in the work, when I'm working in the labs or talking with you, those moments that you share where you see another human being come on board to themselves, Mm. like you have and are, I mean, that's just great. Mm. Talking to you is just, for me, that access to myself is like, drop in, I'm in that resonant field because I know I'm allowed to be, or I know that's expected in that space. And that's such a relief. And there's no judgment in that space. But interesting things are coming up for me when you're talking about the industry and doing the work of staying connected to who you are. And I was in the face of expectations, comparison. Oh, yeah. Well, false sense of self, (laughs) you know, competition, needing to prove, needing to prove yourself, wanting your 
parent to see you and love you and thinking you're going to achieve that through fame, power, or, money. Yeah. Anything external. Our treasurer just released a 6,000 word essay on future perspective of a values-based economy. I mean, those are really awesome words for the treasurer of Australia to... Yes. I'm like, I'm processing. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm just starting to read it today and I'm hungry to read the 6,000 words. I want to know how he's framing it, what he's thinking. And of course, without reading it, the pushback from the conservative media and from the world and the economy is like just full of teeth. People are going bananas just with the proposition Mm. of that sentence, a values-based economy. He's put himself out there with his neck exposed. And he's a really serious, thoughtful guy. Just that proposition is so threatening. Well, because everybody has a different value system. Yeah. So what value is to each individual has not yet been defined. We just know the title. So there can be a tremendous amount of terror because we're always penalizing people, killing people, because they have a value system different than some other value system. Like throughout history, that's been a pretty dangerous place to be. We haven't been inclusive, curious, able to hold space for a multiplicity of perspectives on what has value long enough to even figure out what value means, you know, mm-hmm. like, what is it? I was just thinking about when we were talking, we all want to do the work. I mean, people want to do the work, but the question is, what is the work? Mm-hmm. What is it that you actually do? And I wanted to frame this for folks who are listening. Like when you're talking about in storytelling, what did we do? Just really super simple things like saying, okay, for these four hours, we will close the door, turn off phones devices, you will have a pen, you will have a piece of paper, and your mind. And so for that period of time, however long it is that you can muster, whether it's five minutes or 10 minutes or one hour, and gradually working your way up to three hours or four hours, that you just sit there with yourself, your feelings, and whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's read the 6,000 word perspectives and think about it, or be with your children, or cook a fabulous cake, or try to write your story but feel so blocked that all you can do is just sit there and let paint dry. The point is that you're committing a certain amount of time, however long that time is, and you're saying to yourself in your mind, I'm going to be here with you now for this. And if nothing happens, then you've shown up for nothing. And that has enormous value. Just to show up for space itself, a lot happens when nothing happens. And I'm very, very curious about that as change because we cram up space. We cram up any opportunity for change to occur because we're trying to do so much all the time. Uh, If that makes any sense. But I think that that's one of the things that we're really lacking these days. And so we jump in. We'll jump in to attack anything at all before we give ourselves a chance to investigate it. You're talking about holding space for investigation, for curiosity, which you need to do for a really, 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 really long time before the mind and your ability to feel develops enough to have a point of view. 
And until then, it's just a bunch of confusing words that sound good. And that's a scary experience. And I think that's an experience that we're living right now in these times. Yep. And I'm reflecting on my own inability to hold the space for nothing and how much. Well, I just want to pause and say one thing that's really important while you're reflecting is not to make sweeping categorical statements against yourself. We're then quick to say at the moment that we're feeling some openness towards something that we crave or desire or need or are, right away that impulse is to attack ourselves. Oh, I don't do that enough or I haven't done that. And that's absolutely not true. It's not true in your life work. It's not true in this moment. So we have to be careful and always to remember, again, a little bit goes a really long way. Nobody can hold it for very long. I always think it's a little bit like, not that I know very much about quantum physics, but I think about cosmic time or time properties that can only exist in cosmic time or in space. They literally can't exist on the planet because they're too heavy. You can't think about how far away the oldest star is and put it onto our Earth. You need entire cosmology to be able to think of that. There's a lot of limitations on our personhoods and on Earth itself. So even one second of holding space, which simply means doing nothing at all, with not forcing yourself, not bullying yourself, not pushing yourself into producing something that's perfect. One second of that is really hard and it's worth it. The it's worth it part is, I think, what I'm struggling with because when I'm sitting in that deeper space with you, I feel that to really be true at a mythopoetic level. And then I go into my experience and I went in with that level of intention to some businesses and some projects and definitely with how I work with financial capital and creative capital together. And then I experienced betrayal or failure and failure, it's relative, right? What does that mean? Many successes as well. But those points of pain where I was like, was this worth it? An inability to have perspective because the pain and the hurt, the frequency of that was so high. I didn't have a difficult childhood. And so in many ways, I feel like I expected the embrace in return. I'm like, this is awesome. Let's, (laughs) let's do, you know, let's do this. This is, this is beautiful. People, planet, profit, like all in favor, say I. That's like a, <laughs> that's fucking great. Like we've sorted it out. You know, I had those sorts of naive, open-armed, let's go, you know, and then experiencing pushback, envy, jealousy, attack, betrayal, fraud, all these things that happened in the human space. Like really it's not money itself or the economy itself. It's, it's when we encounter one another, it's in the relational field and all the things about how we work with the materials we have at our disposal to tell the story of how we feel and of humanity. It's so interesting to be using the analogy of Hollywood and Wall Street. I want to say there's a lot in what you're talking about, which is complex in that the evolution or the maturation of one's own abilities, whatever they are, we all have a passionate impulse to go forward, either into a love relationship or a business adventure or a story. You know, you have that desire to change the world, but hidden underneath that is a desire to change your family 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, all right. Just, just okay. I think it's a double-edged sword. At least I know that it isn't in my case at well. To me, to be creative was as a child a survival tactic. And so it's double-edged. So when you were making that gesture with your body, this openness, this full-hearted child purity is what we're talking about. Pure love and wanting to be in the world and to impact and engage and relate with the world. We need that energy. And thank God it wasn't shut down in you. And then working with the actual planet, the laws of gravity, of envy, of jealousy, of pushback, of loneliness, of fear, of betrayal, of failure, of disappointment, Mm. of helplessness, of Mm. greed. That's the work. Because the tendency is, of course, to give up that open-heartedness, that childhood passion, that scope of vision that is innate in all of us that gets crushed or can be crushed as we socialize as we Mm -hmm. meet up with the world as it is right now. And so it is a dance to mature, to carry the vision in a realistic way, whatever it is that your vision is. For me, it has to do with telling stories that are meaningful, both myself and helping other people to do that as well. It is (laughs) hell as well, because you're meeting up with all those feelings. I was thinking about that because I've been reading a lot about hell lately. And in the Celtic myths and Nordic myths, even pre-pagan, and I'm sure this is true in many cosmologies, I'm just citing those two because I was reading about them this morning, hell didn't have a suffering component. Mm. Well, I grew up Catholic, and so that was the entire point <laughs> of hell. <laughs> but it was a place of feeling all of the things that we just spoke to, or you burn with your own envy or grief or whatever it is. So. It doesn't mean to give up. It means that's how things get real, get very, very, very real. And change is hard and change is slow and resistance is natural. I mean, you wouldn't get pushback if what you were saying or feeling wasn't new. And for every single person in every way, it is always new. We just don't know how to hang out with that in each other and things get shut down really fast. Yeah. And it's really painful. It's really incredibly hard and it's incredibly painful, but somebody's got to do the work. Somebody's got to do it. So if you're born with the interest to do it, but the flip side is, is that when you encounter whatever resistance to that, which you might want to do or express or feel or share, like, what do you do? Well, that was my question too, because I was like, I definitely have been at a crossroads with not just where to next, because I can hear and I'm reminded that where to next comes from some space. That answer is not something I pluck from a tree like a ripe fruit. I actually just need to honor space and some time with myself. That's actually quite simple. And not giving up on trying to change someone else's point of view. Yeah. When you're saying earlier, like, can't you see? This is a beautiful vision that you have, Barry. It's a beautiful, generous, wholehearted vision of how the world can be and is as you experience it. That's a gift. That's an enormous gift. But you can't throw out that gift 
because someone else can't see it and instead make your work about fixing everybody else being like if you could just see you know mm-hmm. Like speaking to my own work, if you could just see that it's so cool if you feel something and it won't make your movie bad, commercial Hollywood. That's why I was so happy when we did Whale Rider and to sit in a screening and everyone was crying. I mean, that was my vision. I was like, I just want to sit in a room where everybody in suits feels one thing. Everybody cries because they remember what it felt to be like a little kid just wanting to connect with your dad and your grandpa, and your mom, which is what I think Whale Rider does. But if I were going into each one of anybody in any given moment, and then say, okay, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to get you to see it my way, mommy. (laughs) I'm going to fix it, take on everything and everyone. I mean, I think that comes with the territory when you have the desire like you do, and like I do to help. Like, I just like helping and that aspect of it, but it's really close to fixing. Mm-hmm. And that is disaster. That's mm-hmm. exhausting. That won't work. But the mind is a very complex place. So what's the remedy for that impulse? Staying with your own feelings. Yeah, of helplessness. Like, for me, I just have to get back with the helplessness that I felt as a child. When I find myself going, well, if I help this person or getting this idea through that, then I could somehow fix that which is broken in myself or in my mother or in another person. That is not going to work. So the remedy is always going back to feeling the thing you don't want to feel helpless, lonely, confused to your own emotional truth before you go back into the work of change making, particularly in a leadership role. Because I'm not there to work out my problems on anybody else. That's not what the work is about. It's about your story or anybody else's story. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. I think that what you just said was so powerful and that will stay with people. And all the things that you've said in this hour have been so potent. And I'm sure everyone can now understand why Joan was my teacher (laughs) and how lucky I was and am. And to be exposed to this way of being and to have it form a lot of my own practice. I think when you say stay with your own feelings, it's been acknowledged how hard that is. Almost impossible, I would say. If I speak to the echo in that space, it's for all of us. Why that is, is because there's a feeling that it will stay that way forever, that it won't change, that if I connect with those feelings, I'll get stuck there and there won't be that forward momentum creatively. How do you stay in greed? How do you feel that feeling and then come through that into creating something or into leadership? And I'm going to move to the next thought, and you might want to speak to that. The next thought being what you just said, which I think has stayed with me in all these 20 plus years, when you said to me as a director, don't ever take an actor somewhere you haven't been. Because, yeah, yeah. And that for me was what it means to lead and what it means to hold space, there was an enormous amount of responsibility to have done work first, to have been where you're taking other people in in a lot of ways. So can you speak to that? This issue is about leadership. And that was an incredibly powerful lesson for me very young. So what's coming to mind first, so it's practical, when we're talking in these esoteric ways, when we're talking about feeling or we're talking about big ideas or we're talking about change, talking about leadership, 
they all sound good, but it all just comes down to what can you get up and do every day and what can you manage with yourself and anybody else? And to at least think about it, just awareness. So I'll talk about when I'm teaching directors, leadership at the core also has to do with non-conflict to knowing that you're in a team together. And that's why I love movies and love creative work and business as well, because you're a group of people who are there to bring through an idea. An idea is a felt truth. If the company has something with integrity at its core, or the story has something with integrity at its core, which is what I'm interested in talking about, or investigating. It's not like I know. I don't want to seem like there's a real problem with a cult of experts. Yeah, I feel the same. People are always, oh, but you're so open-ended in your questioning. You don't posit that you know. And I'm like, yeah, because I don't. There's no such thing as an expert, but there's a lot to be said for curiosity and investigation. Mm. So these are the things I'll say in class when I'm teaching directors. So we're in this non-conflict modality anyway. So I have a frame. I'm thinking about things thinking about meaning. So at any given time, when a ginormous feeling comes up, which is every feeling, you're not going to get stuck there, I would like just to say, what if I feel something and I get stuck there? Of course, that is a terror. Mm -hmm. Because it can be when we're pre-verbal, even in the womb, there's very little babies, we have feelings, and we're stuck without consciousness, and without words yet has to be developed. It's amazing that any of us survive it. So that feeling is real. And I do want to say this movie that was nominated for best foreign film, Close, is out right now. God, I mean, it's a miracle how Lucas Daunt, I think his last name is, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but how he just lets the camera play on this experience of big feelings, feeling stuck and overwhelmed by them because they don't know the words and you have no way to talk about them as children. It's astounding, that music, that movie, and how it speaks to everything we're talking about. But I want to say, I do think that we carry that feeling as adults that, okay, if we feel something, we're going to go crazy, or we're going to get stuck here, or it means something bad has just happened. Joan is now bad because I felt something in my work, or you are now bad person I work with because I'm disappointed in your performance. We either get stuck there, fear we're going to go crazy, or start blaming someone for the feeling itself. Those are the three things that we'll do. Stuck, crazy, throw it elsewhere. As a carryover from being a child, having big feelings and not having consciousness, words around them yet, with another human being who could share them, which is really, 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 really hard. So feelings are very big. And it's not like I'm saying you have to sit there and feel it forever. It's just like touch it just even for a millisecond. They're that potent. And the feeling will move on. Change is not something any of us can do anything about. Change is inevitable. Change is happening all the time. You actually don't need to be, I think, too worried about that part because something will happen. A phone call, you get hungry. You need to go to the bathroom. Somebody comes home. Something is going to happen, even if you're completely alone. So it will change by its own energy. 
So here's the five things that I will say to directors, and maybe they apply somehow to leadership. Number one, you must have the vision for the piece as a whole. The five things it takes to be a great director, and a director is a leader. A leader is a receiver, (laughs) basically, Mm -hmm. like a conductor. A great leader is a great conductor, and a great conductor is a great receiver of the music, the moment, and the players. Number two, you must have the ability to communicate that vision. Number three, you must have the ability to create and maintain an environment where people feel free to take risks, Mm -hmm. to create and maintain. Number four, you must have the ability to discern what is needed to keep things on track and moving forward. Number five, you must have the ability to focus on the work and not the ego. And then number six, (laughs) you must have the ability to say, I don't know and mean it. And let that be true, because that's when space arrives. That's when space can happen in that millisecond where we admit, I don't know. As leaders, no matter what we're leading, we can get really trapped in any one of those six things. We can have a vision. You can have that vision inside of you, but you can't articulate it. Number two, you don't have the words for it. And then you might have a vision like you're talking about, Barry, and then you might have the ability to articulate it like you're talking about. And then we're into, okay, now let's create and maintain an environment where people feel free to take risks. And that's where a lot can get tricky because if you're in a business, it's about who you hire and how people change. If you're casting a movie, it's about who you cast and who's on your team. And fixing can really come up because you can feel Mm -hmm. ready to take a risk, but somebody else might have a completely different set of conditions that they need to feel Mm -hmm. safe. And obviously, there's a big dialogue around in the world about what any of this means. And then number four, we can get very confused about discerning what's needed to keep things on track and moving forward. Yeah. Because we focus on the thing that gets said in that moment and not what's actually going on. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's an operations issue or maybe it's uh, something's wrong with the script in this particular beat. So that's actually really powerful. That's number four. And you used the word discernment. You said it a few times. And I think this is really powerful and it sounds esoteric, but you taught me this as well. And it's always stayed with me in moments when I'm in a room and I go, wait, this was screenplay writing that you taught me. You're like, (laughs) the characters will say one thing, but what is the feeling actually underneath like what is actually happening and then you're like that's real life when you get a screenplay right is a moment where you reflect real life real dialogue where you're going to go into rooms and most people will not know why they are in the room (laughs) and it's good idea if you're the director that you are trying to understand why you're in the room and what's actually being said what's actually happening in the room the ability to discern what's really going on as opposed to what's being said. And that's so beautiful. I've always held that with me. There's nothing wrong with the fact that there's multiple things going on or multiple points of view. 
discernment is actually really hard, really refined skill when you know that multiple things are going on and you're not yes. just distracted. Yeah, I think it's natural to all of us, but it has to be cultivated. Yes. I don't know that we have as many opportunities as we actually crave and need to cultivate our innate ability to feel and to connect and to love. It has to be grown over not just days and weeks and months, but years and eons and millennia. Like I say, it's a long game. Human evolution, we're such a young species. You say a lot of big things, John. The soul <laughs> takes a while to catch up. Were you saying that cultivating love, our ability to connect and to love, has been the human project over eons? Oh, yeah. I love that you say that. Because what's wrong with esoteric? It just means the quest and the curiosity to put what is in the inner life together with the material world. That is the definition of esoteric. So that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. So as we enter the zone... I just want to say that I've had some, like everybody, incredible moments in my life, not least of which was studying at your feet, literally, for many years, but I was really in formation. Wow. And I'm just recalling it in this moment for this issue. I'm interviewing one person that I know you admire very much, Stephen Jenkinson, and I'm speaking to a guy called Orlin Bishop, who he's a real mystic. I don't say that lightly. One time I had a real sense of ancient time. It was like I was in a portal and I had a vision just mm -hmm. being in his presence and talking to him mm. was the mm. most powerful, kind of alarming, really beautiful <laughs> vision. And it was of an ancient human mother and she had a baby in her arms and she was on a wild tundra, like the world felt really wild. And she was naked and vulnerable with a baby in her arms. She was breastfeeding the baby. There's something in the embrace and there was breastfeeding and not breastfeeding. And I got this instant download and it was wild because I was standing with him in LA, far from my family and on a trip working. I can't remember what we were talking about. Maybe we were talking about connection, but I had this potent realization because people say when you have a baby, oh, and that love is so instantaneous. I said, no, no, I don't think so. I think what's instantaneous and deeply human and animal in us is to care for this being. But I felt like the love is the cultivation. Mm. I had that sense of what you're talking about, that care is instantaneous and animal, but love is a cultivated sensibility. And that was my download in that moment. And obviously from learning with you all those years, that must be the emotional through line. No, I just think that's what you care about. That was already happening within you when I met you. It feels taboo because in our culture, these ideas have been so carved or watered down or there's all these assumptions. When you actually investigate these big feelings mm -hmm. and these ideas, you go, oh, well, that one's a really big, deep cultivation over eons. Because love is layered. Caring, like you described, just wanting to take care of your child and make sure they grow up alive. Yeah. That is a form of love. But human beings have a very rich capacity to love. Mm. And that is where cultivation comes in. Mm. What actually even is mm. the evolution of love and how we express it towards ourselves in our work and to other people. I always think of the word human being or well, human comes from hummus, earth, and being 
the ing it's like coming to be like it's ongoing and i really feel that we're born babies and we become human through our lifetime we're coming to be earth dwellers we're coming to be human and even to touch what that is with an incredibly young species if we don't kill ourselves before we figure it out which we're seem to be you know hell bent on that trajectory but it's not our only dance card conflict is not our only dance card unawareness is not our only dance card we also have the cards of awareness of cultivation of consciousness of coming to be the work of not knowing which is a reclamation of the truths that we're born with like seeds that need the cultivation of time respect care meeting up with feelings we don't like as well greed envy confusion pain hanging out for long enough that we can develop our own meaningful language for being coming to be an earth dweller i think about that every day you know, how old is this cerebral cortex you know this part of my <laughs> brain that can even come up with words and put them together as thoughts 300,000 something i don't know but the brain stem the part of our brains that can feel it's hundreds of millions it's all this life itself so we have a very rich ability to feel a deep ability to feel and we're only very, I think, slowly evolving to touch how to articulate that, know it and share it. And story is critical in order to do that story. Mm. And we are in a time where the story is changing and where new stories are coming forward. And we don't know what the new money models are. And we're letting go of old ideas about money and value and lack and abandonment and terror and withholding and we're investigating as you are so profoundly in your work ways to create value through connection and beauty and abundance and meaning that has to do with how much we open ourselves up to being human with each other so any act we take i think is an investigation of that whether we're writing a story a hollywood movie a business plan a brand yeah. A YouTube video. Healing comes in every act of creativity. A business is a story. Yep. It is a story. Yep. As is the economy itself. Exactly. Everything's a story, as is politics, mm -hmm. as is our relationship to food, to religion. Everything's a story. Everything's a story we tell ourselves. The question is what stories are we telling ourselves? And what do we believe? We're telling ourselves so many stories every day that come from pre-verbal before we could think we were telling stories to make sense of the world around us. And other people tell us what to believe and what stories are. And we believe that in ourselves and we live and die and never question. And I'm just simply saying, questioning is a form of leadership <laughs> mm. to ask a real question and to stay present for the unfolding response and make it actionable step by step don't just leave it in the dream put it on a piece of paper get up and do it yeah that's the bit of your workshops that i think everyone really struggles with and i think that it's good for everybody listening to know how hard that part is in the workshops right and in life 
that bit where Joan always says, I know you're really comfy putting it on the paper, but that bit where you always say, and now up. <laughs> you have to get up. Yeah. Get up. Move, I mean, the, move the feeling. You have, to, you have to have it in your body. It has to be in your body, especially in the dramatic arts, because when we're writing, we're not writing for the page. It's not a poem, which will come into being in the inner life of another human being, which is so yeah. beautiful about poetry. If you're writing a movie or writing a play, literally, the actor is going to have to get up and do it. You are going to have to get up and build it. Yeah. I just want to say it's the same as business. Like, I yeah. guess it's the same. Yes, it's the same, Barry. Your natural gift at storytelling and your love for it and your passion for it and the beauty that you find in it, in its sense making, is an extraordinary gift that you bring to business. You know, when businesses are telling authentic stories that have integrity and meaning to the creators of those businesses, that's when you feel safe with that business and with that product. Mm -hmm. Meaning somebody cared to get up and do it and still cares about how it's getting up and getting done. That's right. You really taught me to watch for those emotional through lines <laughs> and that integrity because it comes out in the work. And you can feel when it falls away and you can feel when it's there even for a breath. And it's such a relief. Yeah. People need it. People need emotional truth in a business. People are dealing with businesses every single day. You might not necessarily watch a movie or a TV show as frequently throughout the day that you engage in business. Although I do have to say that whatever the number is, some huge number, the number of millennials and Gen Y. They just looked at one group in America alone, not even worldwide. And let me lowball it because I'm not looking at my okay. math. <laughs> okay. Well, let's say it's 20 million. It's more than that, but let's call it that. 20 million in that age group is watching video content, not even just looking at a screen, but looking at videos, whether they're short form or long form. Yeah. Up to eight hours a day. That's like a billion hours. <laughs> of filmed content that is being consumed by this one tiny but, but i want to correlate it directly like the minute you said businesses i went buildings the built environment the agriculture space the money markets like businesses that are real in the world doing real things and not real things i mean i think there is so much more for us to talk about and just to know that all of it is the story we tell ourselves, all of it. And the built environment is so powerful, the spaces that we create. So architects listening, please, property developers, know that you are determining yeah. how we feel. It's how you move is how you move in the house, how you move in the building. I was talking to my brother about this yesterday because he does energy efficiency work and he's always been a savant in that since he was a kid. And he was talking about how there are programs where countries are thinking about or regions are thinking about getting to zero carbon. Yeah, of course. By 2050. Yeah. And one of the ways they're doing that is by looking at buildings and how buildings can yeah, it's be huge. energy efficient. Yeah, of course, it's enormous. Yep. And I thought it just made me think about my own house that was this little cottage that you know well that was built in 1915. And forget it. I mean... It has to work so hard hmm. because the windows don't fit. It wasn't built with that kind of consciousness. And it made me think about buildings and places of work 
What are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be tall, right? Tall and rectangular with like horrible lights so that we can reach the sky and focus. The building is definitely telling us a story of how we need to win. It's all about what can I gain? Yeah. But that is not the only story. The story is what can I experience and how can I love? Mm-hmm. When I've been taught that what I need to do is to win and to gain and to go higher and to acquire. It's just a bunch of crap, really. John Shekel, everyone. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I do want to say in closing that we are here and the work is happening. And better is better. Even a little bit is better. It's like the sun. You don't need to stare straight at it 24-7. It's too much for human eyes to take. But just a little bit of your own light and sharing it with another person goes a very long way. And it is happening. And if there's hope, in Hollywood, we have this big thing about hopeful endings. Like it's got to have a likable character and a hopeful ending. How? When you have an antagonist and a protagonist that are only hell-bent on winning or losing and destroying each other the entire time. But one of them is supposed to be likable. And then at the end of all that, you're supposed to feel hopeful. And okay, whatever. Please, goodbye to that inanity. So there's a misuse of this word hope. That anytime we feel something that's real, we confront anything that's challenging, we immediately want to say, we want to have hope. Hope etymology comes from the root word hop to safety. So there can be a misuse of desperation in that word when we say we want to hope. Underneath that, we're really feeling like, I want to hop to safety. I think that's a real problem in Hollywood movies. And it's something we really have to scrub away for any artist who's wanting to write about something that's real is the feeling or talk about something that's real is to say, well, where's the hope in this? It's in the truth and in the feeling itself. It's in the meaning. It's in trust of what you're capable of feeling and sharing with another person, rather than misusing the word hope to kind of mean, but let me get away from all the things that I have to see and feel in order to bring through your vision. Just let it be what it is and go forward. Love you very much. Very lucky. I feel, as I said at the beginning, so moved, so touched to have this opportunity to talk with you as a full-grown, mature leader. John Shekel, miraculous that I was 21 and I knew that I had to work with her. What a time that was. What what an extraordinary education. Um, I can't explain it, understand even how I knew that I needed to go and work with her immediately after I finished the VCA, the Victorian College of the Arts. Uh, I knew I wanted to do big work in the world and I thought it was going to be in film very linear, very directly. So moved and honoured that I can share just some of Joan's extraordinary wisdom with all of you. And I hope that you get out of it what I get out of it. Peace out. Love you all. This podcast was brought to you by Bank Australia. Join over 185,000 Australians who have made the switch to an ethical bank that doesn't fund harmful industries. Search Bank Australia Solutions.